Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Murray Ellender, who is the CEO of eConsult and is also a GP within the Hurley Group. So if you are based in primary care, general practice, whether or not your practice or network uses eConsult, I'm pretty sure you would have heard of it. Now, eConsult describes itself as an all-in-one consultation platform to collect robust patient information, support triage, manage demand, and ensure patients are seen by the right person at the right time. For many of us, whether it's eConsult or another company, if you go to access your general practice, you will be invited to fill in a form to say what it is that you need. For many practices, that system is powered by eConsult. So I was so, so excited to have Dr. Murray Ellender come on. Wanted to learn more about the organisation, more about Murray's leadership style. I asked him the question, which every woman gets that does like more than two things, and that is how do you do it all? Really tell me how you manage being the CEO of like a multi-million pound organisation and be a GP and be married and have four kids and live a happy life. So we talked a little bit about that. So we get to know the personal side. And then just it was a fantastic business masterclass around leadership, how Murray is passionate about building the next layer of leaders. And when it comes to raising capital, being really clear in what you're raising money for and the delicate balancing act of raising enough money, not too much, but raising enough money and the opportunities for eConsult moving forward. I really enjoyed it. This is a good one. I mean, they're all good ones. And if any of you know of somebody that you think would be a perfect fit for the podcast, please hit me up on social. Message me on LinkedIn if you search for Tara Humphrey. I am open and interested to receive potential podcast guests. (laughs) Okay, enjoy. Hey, Murray, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. I hope you're well too. Yeah, I'm good. It's Friday. The sun is shining. Would you be able to share with our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do today? For sure. So I'm Murray. I'm a, a GP in South London. I've been a GP for 18 years, but I spend most of my week now running a tech business called eConsult. We started about nine years ago now and have been working exclusively in the NHS for that time. And I've got all the war stories and, and scars to share from trying to scale a business within the NHS. 
when you were a kid, what did you want to be? I actually wanted to be a ship's doctor, really weirdly. And I think that was just, I, I watched a kind of carry on film, which got me that. I thought that sounds a good job. You can cruise around the world and look after people. I then got massively distracted and moved away from sciences and did history, English and maths at school. I was going to do archaeology at Edinburgh University before I had a change of heart and switched back to medicine. So yeah, I've kind of always been slightly changing direction, changing tack. It's been a recurring theme for me. I definitely didn't always want to be a doctor. That wasn't like my my thing. Do you still want to be a doctor? Oh yeah, I love it. Actually, general practice is unbiased, obviously. But um, I, I kind of I fell into general practice slightly by accident because I was I was good, was going to be an A and E doctor. My wife, who's also a doctor, we were both doing A and E and we never saw each other. So she said, "I'm going to switch to general practice." And I said, "Well, if you're going to do it, I'll do it too. I'm sure I'll be really bored." It was the best thing I ever did. I'm old now. So when I went to medical school, you didn't get much exposure to general practice. And actually, when I switched to it, I was like, oh, this is brilliant because it's very it's very pure medicine. You know, you get the continuity is one thing, which is brilliant. But you also get 20 patients in the morning and each one you've got to, in a very short space of time, establish a rapport and then work out what's wrong with them. Clearly, general practice is quite hard at the moment. We all know that. But actually, the kind of the medicine side of it still fascinates me. I don't, I don't do enough of it now, frankly. I, I do about a day a week, but that's not enough. Do you need to be a doctor to be able to be the CEO of eConsult? Very good question. I would say to be a tech business within healthcare, you definitely need clinicians. Got a lot of clinicians in our business, and that is really kind of rich and rewarding. Do I need to be a doctor to be a CEO? I don't know. I think it definitely helps. I'm now a clinician who has got into technology. It helps from a sales perspective, apart from anything. You know, I, I'm selling to clinicians. And actually, the fact that I'm still a clinician helps. Also, on understanding the, the problems that we face. Clearly, is it essential? No, there's lots of, there's lo- lots of great health tech businesses that don't have doctors or CEOs. But, you know, from my perspective, it really helps. For people that don't know what eConsult is or what eConsult yeah. does, please could you explain? Of course, exactly. And there'll be lots of people who don't know, or lots of people who think they know, but actually they don't really know as well. So eConsult is a, at heart, what it does is it captures a history from a patient and puts it in front of a clinician and supports this idea of a kind of asynchronous consultation. If you're a patient in general practice, you access eConsult via the GP practice website or through the NHS app. You might go on there with a health need, like, you know, you're worried you've got a UTI or you're feeling depressed or you've got back pain. And we will ask a series of questions related to that condition. So take quite a structured history from the patient, but in their time. And we then gather that information up and put it in front of the, and I'll say GP, but actually we know that often in a practice now it's no longer a GP. It could be anyone who works in the practice who's in that clinical role. And that clinician can then use that information, use the medical record, and then often treat that patient without bringing them into the building. So it's really disrupting the kind of model of how general practice used to work. And in the old days, you know, we used to bring in every single patient to the building to be seen. And actually what we've shown is you don't have to do that. There's a lot of stuff you can manage without the patient sat in front of you, which then brings efficiencies to the practice if it's done well, and also is better for patients because you know, often they don't need to come into a building to to get care. So actually, if we can support them to and manage them asynchronously, we should be. And clearly, then there's going to be patients who need to be brought in, but we can work out who they are and bring only those patients into the building that either want to be seen face to face or need to be seen face to face. When you first rolled eConsult out, did everybody go, this is amazing, you've changed my life? 
No. <laughs> Definitely not. I think it's no. It's really interesting. It's the, the you know the bit that really fascinates me about the, the kind of the tech. There's the technology side, which is great, but also there's the change management piece, which goes with it. And we built version one of eConsult as a tool for our own patients. So I'm a GP in London, part of a large group practice called Hurley, and we built it really for our own patients. And so much like any kind of evolution of a new product, you kind of learn through trial and error. And actually, when we when we were first testing kind of, you know, digital tools to support GPs, like everyone, we tried video first, but actually video didn't really add much value. It was helpful because you had a patient and doctor in different places, but it was still synchronous. So they were still in this, you know, you still needed 10 minutes of doctor, 10 minutes of patient. That's why we came up with the other idea, which is let's gather the history from the patient and put it in front of the clinician. Early testing, you know, patients liked the idea. Patients actually adapted to it faster than clinicians. But, you know, for, for a clinician, it's a di- completely different way of interacting. We're all taught at medical school to take a history from a patient when they're sat in front of you in the same room. It's a different skill. And actually, some GPs take to it and others don't. You know, there's a, there's a big bit of transformation that needs to go with it. And that's why we've got hugely varied uptake in the use of eConsult. You know, some practices totally get it and some practices don't. We're still in the early stages, I'd say, of this transformation journey. Where you say patients have adapted quite well, I was having a conversation with a friend who's a GP mm. and I was comparing it to chat GPT and I was like, yeah. the better information you put in to eConsult, the better output. I know that there are lots of patients, you know, like I had a shoulder injury yeah. and I just wanted diazepam. <laughs> yeah. just yeah. like... I know what I need. Yeah. <laughs> and I did get it a couple of times. But I think I'd put something different. I don't know what I'd put. And yeah. then a first contact physio had messaged me back and said, I've seen your e-consult. Yeah. I know that you're requesting your prescription. I'm not saying no, but would you value an appointment? Okay. And I was like, it's really interesting. I changed yeah. my approach <laughs> and I got a better, <laughs> I'm no longer addicted. And it was all <laughs> fine. But I think that from my role in primary care, as you say, some people love it. Some people hate it. I remember, I think it was like in the news, it was like, we, we can't turn it off, but we need to turn it off. It, we're getting yeah. too many and patients are just trying to game the system. They're putting yeah. all sorts in there. It's not helpful because yeah. they just want an appointment. So where you say patients have adopted it, I've not received any education. It is just like, if you want to contact your doctor now, you go to e-consult. Like, how do you know patients have adapted? What information have you given patients? Yeah, it's a really good question, Tara. And actually, frankly, not enough. You know, you go through a whole cycle with practices. And the big lesson I've learned in this whole journey is that you need to pay much more attention to the transformation than we have done. I don't mean e-consult. I mean, we as an NHS. So if you're going to kind of make digital interactions between doctors and patients, we need to explain this to everyone. So what the NHS did when it started to fund digital transformation in primary care, it got quite good good at procuring the technology, but it did not think about the transformation that needs to go with it. So in all, in too many cases, you've got the, you're relying on the practice to work out how to implement this stuff. You know, I'm, a, I'm a SME, I, you know, we're a small business. We do provide support to practices, but we're, we're in like 2,700 practices. I can't, I'd love to, but I don't have the bandwidth to support all of them. And actually what we should have done when we launched all of this stuff, you know, I'm talking more broadly about the NHS, is really think about the transformation that's required. You know, and and too many practices kind of had to work that out themselves. And back to your point about kind of telling patients, market it to their patients. And we gave, you know, we give practices lots of tools to help them with that. Like, you know, 
posters and scripts for receptionists to use to direct patients to websites, etc. But actually, what GP practices really need to do is think about how they're going to use this tech. And what we know today is that general practice is really stretched. So if you go to a GP practice and say, hey, look, I've got this really good thing. It's going to change. It's going to make things better. But you do have to change how you operate. A lot of practices go, yeah, sure. But I'm really busy. Can you come back next week? (laughs) Understandably, there's no headspace in general practice to go, right, let's just pause for a bit and think of a new way of doing this. And clearly, there's huge variation. But I would say that some practices really have cracked how to manage triage digitally. And then their patient population have got used to it. So sure, the receptionists had to work quite hard in the early days to divert patients from phone to online. But once the patient population has got used to that, okay, actually, I don't get on the phone at eight o'clock in the morning to ring my GP. I now go to their website. You know, patients get used to that and they value it. It doesn't just happen. You're absolutely right. You say that you're, I'm a small business, I'm an SME. How much venture capital have you raised? Good question. We bootstrapped this business in the first six years of our existence up till 2020. And we then took 7 million of external funding in 2020. And that was really to to develop the technology. Because bear in mind, we built something effectively on a total shoestring for our own patients. Suddenly it had scaled and was in a lot of general practice. So we recognized we needed to make the tech slicker, improve the journey for patients, and invest a lot in the infrastructure and kind of build, you know, version two for the future. So that's why we raised some external funding. Interestingly, we spent unintentionally, we spent quite a lot of that money because the NHS changed their, changed their payment mechanism in 2021. So kind of a lot of that money just went in working capital, which was interesting. But you know, an, another bit that we wanted to develop was actually this, we've got this idea of asynchronous consultation in general practice. Can we apply that in other settings, i.e. other, other journeys into healthcare? So that, you know, again, and we 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 used the money to do that. So we now actually have applied e-consult in an A&E setting and also in a hospital outpatient setting. So this idea of the asynchronous consultation now happens in general practice, A&E and outpatients. So it's been it's been a really and you know as a as a business it's been really interesting for us. You know that whole kind of raising money and what that does for you as a business, how that accelerates things, a fascinating journey. So in secondary care, in A&E, at what point, me as the patient, yeah. at what point do I fill in the e-consult if I've fallen off my bike and I need to go to A&E? At the moment, we do that when you arrive in the A&E. And you could say, well, why don't you do it from home? And ultimately, we'd like to. But actually, at the moment, most patients are kind of trained over time to go to the A&E. So we're capturing all the people who arrive on foot and about 75% of patients coming into an A&E arrive on foot. Well, I don't mean on foot, you know, or in a car. They, they, they get themselves there. So we're dealing with those, those ambulatory arrivals. And the way we do it is we have a whole bank of iPads. Other tablets are available, but we use iPads. At the iPad, the patient walks up to it and it asks them who they are. So identifies them and then asks them why they're there. So it takes a history from them. It's the same idea, just in a different environment, because here you've got a patient who's present in the department, but we're gathering the history in that patient's time. And what that does is it means that you, within five minutes of every patient of, of arrival, you know who the patient is and how sick they are. So we can then categorize them and go, well, actually, this patient's pretty sick. So they come in recess. This patient's fallen off their bike. They possibly next ray. Let's order that at the beginning of the journey. Or this patient's not very sick at all and actually maybe doesn't need to be here. So you're kind of using it as a triage tool for those patients who've arrived in A&E. And we've got that live in about 10 sites now with another 12 or 13 going live in the next few months. 
So where you see the patient shouldn't necessarily be in A&E, how long does that patient need to wait to find that out? It depends a bit because then on the... And how, what operationally the A&E does next, because we do still have a human that supports redirection. I think, you know, if it's a simple redirection within the hospital, like, you know, actually this patient needs to be going to the early pregnancy unit. Fine. That's relatively easy. If it's back to general practice, you still need a human to have a conversation today to say, actually, there's a 12 hour wait here. We think this is better served in general practice. Do you want us to help you get an appointment? Now that's that's today. We are we are testing with some departments though. The idea that actually, you know, it's, st- it's still a bit of a difficult journey. If you say to someone, actually for this chronic back pain, you're probably better off going back to your GP. The patient might then go, yeah, but I've, I've tried my GP. I can't, I can't get an appointment. Then what we can do technically now is I could put that information I've gathered back into the GP's queue. So if a practice uses eConsult pretty well, I can put that back into their triage queue back in the GP surgery and say, don't worry, your GP will ring you back later today. Now, that is a fairly appealing journey that actually most patients may well go, "Okay, I'll take that and leave. You know, I I think that that redirection away from the department is a difficult one, but there's lots of potential to do more of that going forward. Taking that example one step further, and if we think about the new GP contract changes, if general practice potentially increases its redirection so general practice is saying i can't help you tara but actually you need to go somewhere else yeah or 111 yeah 111 picks it up i might end up going to a and e and then the doctor says you know what tara you need to go back to general practice and to a degree that probably happened you know like that yeah. cycle happens yeah. but is that the answer is read i suppose it's the word redirection because you all have patients in the middle going who the hell is going to see me Redirection is definitely not the answer. Okay, what you don't want to be doing is pushing patients around the system because that's pain for patients and annoying for everyone, right? That, that idea of kind of you know, going one 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 into A&E back to GP, what a waste, right? What, what we really need to be doing is getting everyone to start that journey digitally from home. You know, I'm going to be biased because I'll, I'll use the word e-consult, but everyone needs to be gathering that kind of structured information from the patient. We need to be doing that almost for every patient journey and then using that information to determine where the patient's best need is best served. And today, that doesn't happen. Okay, So today, the system still thinks in silos, and, and the system still buys in silos. So even, even though the ICSs are emerging, the system today still buys in silos. So we're buying digital systems for general practice, we're buying digital triage systems for A&E, and we're buying digital triage systems for outpatients, and often they're not aligned. And now I'm saying, look, it all needs to be interoperable and talk to each other. So actually, as a patient, if you enter information from home, we can go, well, actually, this is suitable for the physio in your primary care network. So we're going to route it to them. They'll ring you back later today. Or actually, if your need is more urgent because you've fallen off your bike, it'll say, yeah, there's an urgent care centre down the road. They've got reasonable availability. Head there now. Or actually, some of the symptoms you've described are quite worrying this probably needs a specialist. We're going to push you into a specialist pathway. We're going to let your GP know. So that, you know, that's where I want to get to, where actually every journey starts from home and digitally, but not, you know, you can't do that if you've got 15 different systems. So that, and I think that's why things like the NHS app are useful, because actually if you could surface this, say, within the NHS app, and actually the routing happen behind the scenes, but to the patient, they've just got one door. That's a better future. And that's why I'm optimistic about the future. Do you ever turn e-consult off in your practice? 
We do sometimes, I think we do at the weekends we do. And that's all about, and I, I don't like that, right? So historically, when we started, when we, we, we didn't offer the ability to turn off e-consult because actually for us, it was kind of like, well, look, it's great. Patients can access this 24-7. However, as more and more people are using e-consult as a door, if you want to harness the power of these tools properly, you really have to restructure how your clinical workforce works through the week. So that does, you know, it takes quite a lot of thought because, you know, we'll know that demand is highest on a Monday. So what, and what digital does is it really surfaces true demand. So you've then got to have the workforce that can cope with that demand. And now we're into a kind of a difficult debate because general practice, as we all know, is struggling, right? So it's, you know, every practice and our practice is not, is not exempt from this operates with, you know, at least, you know, one to two GP vacancies every single practice in the land and um, you know that's thing kind so actually you can't say to a practice suck it up when <laughs> they can't so actually that's why we have we have we had to kind of you've got to listen to your customer if the audience is saying look we can turn off our fa- face-to-face phones we can turn off our phone appointments but we can't turn this online one off you're not going to have happy customers so we've had to give practices in response to the kind of gp workforce crisis the ability to turn it off if they choose to and that's either because they've reached capacity in the daytime or because they want to turn off at night or they want to turn off at weekends. You've got to listen to the, the mood out there. But, you know, I do think, again, though, the, the things like digital triage support all the new ways of working at a network level and with the R's roles. Actually, if we get if you can get that right, you should, in theory, be able to leave the system on 24-7. And we've definitely got examples of, of practices and PCNs that do, do, do do that. But it's kind of how do you take that learning and go, right, you, this is possible, but how do we apply it everywhere? Because actually, if you if you really get it right, then you're getting you know your anything that's pharmacist suitable to the pharmacist, anything MSK to the physio, the mental health cases to the mental health worker. And if you're triaging really well and kind of automating that, you should be able to cope with demand because demand is not unlimited. So where you say, well, we can't just say to practice, suck it up. We need to listen to the customer. Yeah, to a degree that is happening because. Outside of eConsult, if I, as yeah. a patient, am I am the customer, yes, and I'm saying I want to access the GP yeah. on yeah. my time, yeah. I'm a busy working mum, yeah. I don't have time to do X, Y, and Z. I want to be able to book an appointment on my phone. I want to call me back and give me my drugs. Totally, <laughs> uh, we have different customers. Yeah, there's the patient customer, there's the GP practice customer. Often they're not even the purchaser. The purchaser might be the ICS. So, and they all have different needs and wants. And yes, you're absolutely right. As a pay, as a kind of when you're looking at the the customer as the patient, this the total point of this should be it should be available twenty four seven. Actually, all we do if you turn it off at the weekend, all you're doing yeah. is you're just making the patient log in at eight o'clock in the morning. You know, and that instead of a kind of eight a.m. phone rush, they're doing an eight a.m. online rush. That's not good, right? But however, you know, you've also got to kind of on the other on the other hand, we've got to understand that general practice is really struggling. So it's all very well me kind of saying as this kind of tech person, no, 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 like you know, you should be able to cope with this. The reality is general practice often can't. Do I think there's a way through this? Yes. If digital tools are deployed really properly, probably at a PCN level. There's definitely examples of PCNs that that are on top of and managing demand. Is that universal? No. 
The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. I've got an idea. So I was doing a little bit of research and I thought, I won't ask you, how do you see AI in healthcare? But I did think, could you see a day with eConsult where... Now I'm filling in my details. Could eConsult say, could could you program it to know the last like three times I have contacted my surgery? So it'll be like, Tara, is this in relation to your shoulder injury or this injury or that? And pull down that information to save me time filling in the same information over and over again. 1,000% 1,000% Tara. And th- this frankly should be happening today. Yes. Okay? It should be. And this is a kind of, you know, it's a bit of a, it's a slight frustration of mine that interoperability with, and I'm not, you know, I, I know, I know this is kind of a, a primary care focus here. So this isn't, but actually this is across the board into, into secondary care systems as well. Interoperability in healthcare is not sophisticated enough yet. Because actually I hoped by now that if, as a patient completing an e-consult, the system should be able to read your record and go, I know that this patient has diabetes, hypertension, what medication they're on, and tailor the questioning accordingly. Technically, that's totally possible. And actually, we should know. All this information is there that you consulted three times already for the shoulder pain. You know, and actually, we're starting down that journey. However, today, the way the kind of interoperability works with the systems I'm still in the realms of gathering that information into a PDF and putting it into a system, which is not sophisticated enough. That is changing as the EPR providers kind of up their game and their systems get more sophisticated. Also, as we see kind of like data layers sitting above hospital and GP EPRs, I might never have to be able to read EMIS and System 1 and Cerner. It might be that I can read the layer of data that sits above it and start to understand actually, we know this patient's smoking status. I don't need to ask it again. And we're getting quite close to that because that, I get that. There's a total frustration for patients. What industries do you look to and think, oh, if only we could be like that or they've got X. Like Sometimes it's easy to just immerse yourself in healthcare, but there's a big wide world out there. All of them except healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> every, every other industry does this better than healthcare. And we kind of tie ourselves in knots in healthcare, not really knowing how to use the technology, whereas actually in every other realm of our life, it works, right? You go onto Amazon and it knows it knows what you want to buy before you even start searching. We should definitely be able to apply these, these logics to healthcare. So we, yeah, definitely. And another example of that is we're doing some work in Birmingham with the kind of phone 
systems. So actually, when you ring up, we can start to understand patients' intent, understand if they'd like to continue digitally or on a phone journey and route them accordingly. Huge opportunity. And then, you know, that supports then channel shift into digital. And and then actually that patient that maybe doesn't like digital channel, well, that's fine. We can still take an e-consult, but do it through a very human sounding automated voice over the phone. So for the patient, they've gone down a kind of phone journey, which they're more comfortable with, but the receiving clinician is getting the structured information into their system in the way that they are for all their other triage patients. So yes, there's lots of kind of lessons we should be learning from all other industries. <laughs> Healthcare just lags behind. It really does lag. And that's what frustrates patients because they're like, look, I do everything else online. Why can't, what do you mean I can't book an appointment? What do you mean there's no appointments available? You mentioned that you raised money. What do you wish you'd known then that you know now about raising capital? Probably something about, you know, definitely raise enough. It's a really difficult balance kind of raising external funding because you don't want to, if you raise loads, then suddenly you're kind of, you're no longer really in charge of your own destiny. You know, we raised a pretty appropriate proportionate amount. However, you always also underestimate what you've got to do. So and that's part of the, the problem, you know, as we've talked about the kind of health, the transformation that's needed in healthcare, it needs some pretty sophisticated technology. Frankly, it costs a lot of money. I could have a tech team that's twice the size. I'd love to have a tech team that's twice the size of the one we've got now, because then we could just do more stuff and go faster and make the system better for patients and better for clinicians. But I'm, I'm limited by that. So I think it's really thinking through you know, what you're going to do over the next, you kind of what, be really clear on your roadmap, how much that is then going to cost you to develop. Are there other ways you might develop it, like, you know, partnering up with others that, you know, just to save you doing all the work potentially. So, but I, I don't, I don't regret raising money at all. I think it was, you know, it was a really good step at the right point in our journey. There's a bit of me wishes I've raised more. When do you start thinking about the next round? Well, a lot of people say when they've kind of got into venture capital, as soon as you finish that round, <laughs> okay. but that's a difficult cycle to get into. So I think it's, you know, and it really depends on the pace of your growth and being really honest, you know, the rate of growth in any kind of, i very kind of UK focused here, but, very, you know, it's hard to grow really fast in the NHS, like honestly, because the NHS doesn't let you, it doesn't let businesses scale fast. So you're rarely going to get into a cycle of, you know, raising money and then immediately need to raise more. Probably a kind of two year window is good. Like, you know, raise, deploy that money, deliver what the, you, you intended to do and then raise again. Because it takes a lot of energy out of a business rate fundraising and particularly out of the, the senior team. You know, it takes, a, I remember when we did our first run, fundraise, our chairman, who was very experienced, said, this is going to take, Murray, this is going to take you personally six six months and most of your time. And I was like, don't be silly. But he was right. Like it does take a lot of energy and, and headspace. You also got to be sure that your business can carry on running while the CEO and the CFO are off fundraising. You know, you've got to have confidence in that. What does your home life look like? Good question. Well, we've got four children. So actually, I still go to work to have a rest. <laughs> And, and luckily, they're all, they're, all, they're a bit grown up now. So I've got, I've got a range of 18-year-old, 16-year-old, 11-year-old, and a 9-year-old. So actually, they've, they've got a lot more self-sufficient. So it's actually, you know, they're, they're pretty good at, you know, getting themselves to school. There's quite a lot of delivery action in our house, unfortunately, because, you know, my wife and I are both at work. But 
you know, you've got to ha- you've got to have to get that balance right of family life and running a business and being a doctor. As long as you're kind of really conscious of that, I get. I'm really fortunate, I think, because effectively I've got I've got one big thing I focus on, which is e-consult in my work life, and I still do a bit of general practice. Relatively simple for me because I can just focus on e-consult. That's what I do. So people say to me, if you're a woman and you do more than one thing, some people say, well, how do you do it? But I want some practical advice. How do you maintain a healthy marriage, a good relationship with four children, look after yourself mentally, physically, have a bit of a social life, run your business? How do you do that and be happy? Good question. I think so. I think there's some really important things that I would say to patients as well about mental health and balance is definitely find time for exercise. It's the easiest thing. And you know this well, Tara, it's the easiest thing to cut. I'm so busy. I don't have time to exercise. Make time, right? That apart from anything, it's great headspace time. Even if it's just going out for a five kilometer run, it's time where you can't do emails or (laughs) check LinkedIn. That's so important because it's headspace and it just, and thinking time. And we all know the kind of, you know, the physical, sort of the mental health impact of physical exercise, really important. So make time for exercise. I, I run. And, and I combine that often with a commute. So I'll run into work or every weekend, not all, not all the kids, my wife, I, and maybe one or two of the kids will do park run. But again, that's kind of combining something, you know, you can all go in. Also, I think going on holiday, really important. And it doesn't, you know, I don't mean go on holiday somewhere exotic, but actually make sure that you take your leave. Many people, like you, you know, and I know this from my, my clinical life and also, you know, when you're, when certainly when you're a kind of entrepreneur and running a startup, it's all consuming, but make sure you still book holidays and go away with your family because that time is kind of really, you know, you, you'll never get that back. You know, I definitely take six weeks holiday a year. I, look, I might do a bit of work while I'm away, but I'm still away with the family. Really important. How would you describe your leadership style? What I've become really conscious of is creating the next tier of leaders. So it's as far as you can, leadership through creating leaders throughout your organization. So, and that starts, you know, with your kind of senior leadership team, but actually you should make sure they're also creating a leadership team beneath them. That's the best way to make your job doable because you're not taking everything on but also really conscious of training up the next generation of leaders. And especially in a growing business, because actually, you know, when we started eConsult, you know, there were six of us and there's now 76 of us. But actually what I make sure is that you're, and even people who are coming into the business kind of relatively early in their career, making sure they know what they want to do with their career and giving them, equipping them with the tools to lead because you want to train the next generation of leaders. That's really important. And the other thing I'd say as well, and um, we let you know we all learned this really well during the pandemic, but communicate lots internally. So you can't, you know, talk to your business a lot. Tell them what your plans are, tell them when things are difficult and why they're difficult and what you're doing about it. Be really open. That's really important. What is a decision that you are currently wrestling with? It's kind of how do I navigate this world of you know selling technology into the NHS? Because it's really, you know, the bit that's really exciting and interesting is changing how healthcare is delivered. I'm also really, having kind of been trained by the NHS, I'm kind of really committed to making the NHS more sustainable. 
but doing anything at pace with the NH- within the NHS is really hard. I think we've got lots of good ideas that I want to get into as many GP practices hospitals as possible. I'd like that to go faster. How do I make that go faster? And what we know is that you can't rely on the kind of NHS as a payer to support that. So then it's kind of like, okay, well, how, how else could we do this? So it's thinking about who you might partner with kind of strategically. So aligning yourself with other health tech businesses that actually might do something complementary to you. And then that really helps, you know, solve wider problems. So we're, we're kind of t- thinking a lot about that at the moment. It's kind of like, look, we know what we do well. We do the digital triage bit, but that's just one bit of the puzzle. So how do I, you know, who else might I, I work with in order to solve the wider puzzle? And, and thinking a kind of, a, you know, beyond general practice at that kind of ICS level. So that's, that's quite a lot of thinking we're doing at the moment. What does that digital kind of layer look like? And what are the important components within it? And how do you manage your time? Because I'm sure when this gets released, people will hear that. So many people want to speak to you. <laughs> yeah. Like they must, they will do already. You know, My like... number is. <laughs> yeah. I know, well, again, it's that whole bit about delegation. I, like I've got a really, I've got a fantastic team. You know, I, I don't have all the conversations. So I'll often be approached, but actually I'll go, okay, look, the best person to speak here is, is Mark. I'm very happy to be contacted and probably the easiest way is through LinkedIn. But often I might go, okay, well, actually you need to speak to the person who's leading on A&E within the team. I can't have all of the conversations. And that's that point about kind of delegating leadership and making sure you've got people in your team, like trusting your team, really important. Last couple of questions. What do you think your team would be surprised to learn about you? I don't know, because I'm kind of really, I'm kind of tend to be really open with my team, you know, and tell them, uh, I do a bit of a kind of Friday night wrap up at the end of every week where I tell them, you know, what's happened in the week and what we've got going on at the weekend, that kind of thing. And it's not, it's not about me, but it's more about the business, what's going on. So, but through that, you end up sharing quite a lot. I think they'd be surprised They'd probably be surprised to hear how much I do value the whole kind of like the family thing that we've talked about. Like that is really important. That makes you, keeps you grounded and keeps you sane. And they're probably their perception of me is Christ Murray's mad. You know, he's still sending, he's sending emails at 11 o'clock on a Sunday night. Like what's wrong with him? But I definitely feel like I'm, I have got that balance right. You know, and, 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 you know, we all use modern digital tools to allow us to kind of work at a time that suits us, you know, but I, and I really value that whole kind of family stuff and, and that really grounds me. Thank you so much. If people want to connect with you, where's the best place you mentioned? I think probably LinkedIn is the easiest. I'm also on Twitter, but Twitter's got a bit strange. I mean, Twitter's always been a strange place anyway, but it's got a bit stranger recently. So LinkedIn's probably the best and people can connect with me, message me. I'm, I'm very happy to chat anytime. Excellent. We'll leave your handle in the link below. Thank you so much for your time. Tara, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five-star review.
I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.